If you are looking to elevate your leadership and drive your nonprofit forward, I invite you to subscribe to the Successful Nonprofits newsletter. Every week, I curate exclusive shareworthy content that sparks inspiration, innovation, and conversation. From the latest trends to timeless advice, the weekly email newsletter is your all-access pass to a treasure trove of resources. But receiving the newsletter is not just about staying informed. It's also about getting our best content first. Subscribers get first access to our newest downloadable templates designed to propel your leadership and amplify your impact. And that's not all, my friend. We are constantly working on new ways to support you and your mission. So as a subscriber, you'll get updates on our latest projects, opportunities to participate in surveys, and a say in the topics that we tackle next. You will essentially get me as a consultant, coach, and confidant in your inbox, ready to help you navigate the challenges of nonprofit leadership. So if you're an executive director, board chair, or a nonprofit leader who believes in making a difference, join me as a newsletter subscriber. Visit SuccessfulNonprofits.com forward slash newsletter to sign up today. And now, friend, let me take you to the episode you've downloaded. Welcome to the Successful Nonprofits Podcast. I'm your host, Dolph Goldenberg. In this episode, Rob Bisegli will be joining us to talk about thriving during and after COVID. But before we have that conversation, I wanted to let you know that within the next week, our chief executive coaching group is going to be launching, and our January group is actually for executive directors who want to thrive during the recession. One of the things that we know statistically, the second year of a recession is always harder on the nonprofit sector than the first year. So if you're looking out over 2021 and starting to scratch your head and say, how are we going to make this work? Check out the coaching group. I also just have to share with you that we are recording this in November. So the coaching group might already be completely full. We can only have 12 people in it. So if it's completely full, reach out to me and I can let you know when the next one will be starting. And with that, I am so pleased to be able to welcome Rob Bisegli to the podcast. Rob is the CEO of a national nonprofit called Action for Kids, and he has been there, gosh, for 15, 20 years, something like that. And I will share with you, as I reviewed his LinkedIn page, as I read some of the things that he has written, it became very clear that he is an intentional, innovative, and generative leader, that he thinks through new ways for organizations to be doing things and new ways that organizations can respond so that they are able to thrive. As I mentioned just a couple minutes ago, we're recording this in November. So while we're going to be talking about thriving during and after COVID, you know, things are moving pretty fast. We don't know exactly what the middle of January 2021 looks like from where we sit right now. But what I can share with you is I feel pretty confident that we will still be feeling the impact of COVID and we will still be planning for how we are going to emerge from this period. Rob, welcome to the podcast. Oh, it's great to be here, Dolph. Thanks so much for having me. I hope I can live up to those uh, big words you just used for me. Well, one of the things in doing my research, I saw this one phrase that you had written. 
and its big problems don't always require big solutions. That is so elegantly simple, and I'm hoping we're going to start our dive there. Right. Yeah. I mean, I think it's a really important idea. The reality is, of course, nonprofit organizations, just in general, even before COVID hit us, what we do is we tackle big problems. And if we try to match up our solutions to those big problems every single time we encounter one, we would be working endlessly. And so the idea of finding those really simple solutions, you know, oftentimes they're more impactful than the big, really complex ones. Having said that, Action for Healthy Kids is a fairly complex organization, but we try to get the small victories every day to make sure that we're really, uh, really going after those big problems with, with simple solutions. Can you give us an example of a big problem that you've seen an organization face and a simple solution that it came up with? There's a big problem uh, that we dealt with in a very micro way that I think is really interesting. So one of the challenges that we face at Action for Healthy Kids and our schools and our kids face is, of course, food access. So all over the country, we know that kids are entering school every single day. It's, it's more intense now than it was some months ago uh, before this all started with us. But we know that kids are entering school every single day without a healthy and nutritious meal. And so we realized this at Action for Healthy Kids many years ago. And we're a school-based organization, or that's, that's our leverage point. So we knew we could make a difference. And I remember vividly, uh, you know, our model is an interesting one. Uh, we really focused in on school breakfast as being an area where we could make a difference because we knew that the participation levels around school breakfast were uh, very differentiated by community. We knew we could make a difference. I remember in my very early days at Action for Healthy Kids, going to a meeting at a school and sitting down. I was probably in a room with about 100 people in it. And I remember one of the school food service professionals standing up and telling a story. She was the woman who every morning was on the line in the, in the food service department trying to feed kids. And I remember her telling the story about how she had gotten really frustrated over the months prior to that because she knew that she wasn't getting to enough kids in the morning and that their kids were coming into the school and they were still hungry. And she was telling uh, the story about how she had figured out that the kids gathered in the playground before school and she had no access to them. And then realized that there was a food cart that hadn't been used by the school or the school district for months. And I remember the expression on her face and quite honestly, the tears in her eyes as she explained, she applied for a grant uh, from Action for Healthy Kids. And I remember her standing up and telling the story, literally with tears running down her eyes saying, we helped her buy a wheel for her food cart. She was able to take that food cart out into the playground in the morning and make sure that those kids were able to get the breakfast that they uh, needed coming into school. It's not a, an example of a big problem in that school, but for those kids, it was a big problem. And the solution was simple. They didn't need to create a new breakfast program. They needed a wheel for their cart. And I remember her, you know, her satisfaction and just how great she felt when she was telling the group that they had found this really simple solution and they were able to get out to the kids in the morning. And uh, it stuck with me all these years later. Like you said, I've, been, I've actually been at Action for Healthy Kids for 13 years now. So it's been a long time. And I remember it all these years later. It was one of the first things I experienced when I went out to a school. So I got to ask... Do you recall or do you know about how much that wheel cost? <laughs> it can't be more than a few bucks. You know? I mean, in the grand scheme of things, at that time, I think we were giving out a little tiny mini grants for schools. It may have been $250 worth of a mini grant, only part of which probably went to that wheel. So a few bucks 
helped feed who knows how many hundreds or thousands of kids over the years, day in and day out. I mean, the impact, if you think about the ripple effect of that one action, that one idea, that one woman who is willing to problem solve and, and make a difference in her community, I, I really just think that's, uh, that's how uh, we need to think about the problems in our society. I love that you talked about the ripple effect because it's not just the kids are fed. It's, okay, which kids did better on some quizzes and exams over the course of the year, which meant they had a better year and they had a, a better opportunity going into high school or college. Yeah, the whole premise of Action for Healthy Kids is that in order for a child to really succeed in life, to grow and develop and maybe the, become the kind of adult that they want to be and we all want them to be, there are these foundational items that need to be addressed. Things like health and well-being, social and emotional uh, connections uh, that need to be made with their schoolmates and their teachers and so on. These are all really critical elements that are foundational. And when you can address those, you can set kids up for a life of success. And, and it really is at the core of what we do at Action for Healthy Kids. So if you're at a nonprofit and gosh, you've got a big problem. So you're kind of metaphorically walking around this problem and looking at it and trying to figure out how to solve it. Where does one start so that they can find those simple solutions, not those big solutions? It might sound counterintuitive as I begin saying it, but I think it's true. I'm a huge advocate of strategic planning for nonprofit organizations. I've worked my whole career in this sector, and I, I've seen those that have them and really take it seriously. And then I've seen those uh, that don't. There's a stark difference between the two. So we had Action for Healthy Kids. Uh, I've written now with our board of directors four strategic plans in my 13 years, you know, approximately every three years or so. And it's, uh, it's hard. It is not easy to try and take those challenges on head on and really make sure that you're addressing them in a way that's feasible for the organization, will have the intended impact, and all of those kinds of things that we've been talking about that are really simple and straightforward. Uh, but I think it's really a crucial. Our, our, our current strategic plan, there's an interesting story behind it. After several years of really starting to do some introspection, or after a couple of years of thinking to ourselves, we're not, we're not getting exactly where we need to be as an organization. We decided to open up our strategic plan early. We were realizing that you know, our organization, we were, we were created to combat the childhood obesity epidemic. I don't know if you know, former Surgeon General Dr. David Satcher is the person who helped create Action for Healthy Kids. He finished up in the Bush and Clinton administrations as Surgeon General, and he literally wrote the report calling obesity an epidemic for the first time in our country. Uh, and when he left office, he got together with a group of people and formed Action for Healthy Kids. So for many, many years, Action for Healthy Kids was an organization that was really uh, concentrating on physical health and well-being of kids, proper nutrition and physical activity being real cornerstones of that. Over the years, it became obvious to us, especially in more recent years, that things like social and emotional well-being and mental health issues and others, all these issues are intertwined. You can't separate them out. Last year, in the middle of the year, we said to ourselves, you know, we really got to, we got to dig deep into the literature to better understand childhood development. And so we formed a committee of our board of directors, a strategic planning committee. It's an ad hoc committee. And we dug deep. We have some experts on our board who helped us do that too. It was really just a fantastic process. And what we ended up with is a strategic plan that has taken us in new directions this year. And of course, you know, we hit this year and there are all kinds of wrenches thrown into the works, but the great thing about it is 
the bones of the plan are still solid because it's based on you know, the best of the best research that we can come up, up with. It was incontrovertible research around childhood development. And now we're headed in a new direction. And although, you know, I always treat a, a strategic plan as a work in progress, you can't really set it and then forget about it. That's just not how they work. We've now got the framework of a plan that continues on even through COVID and beyond. Uh, so I, I just think, you know, that kind of work, although, like I said, I know that's very challenging, uh, is really important. I love the fact that you said with a strategic plan, you can't just set it and forget it. When I help organizations with planning, I always do quarterly check-ins for the first year to kind of get them in the habit of checking back in on their plan. And it's interesting because the first time I'll do it, and oftentimes it's the first time that an organization has done a check-in, like a formal check-in on their strategic plan. And I always start by saying, you know, it's not about, okay, we did this or we didn't do this. It's really about, okay, how's your implementation going? What obstacles have you hit? And do we change some goals? Do we come up and brainstorm some ways to overcome these obstacles? Do we punt a goal to another quarter? What do we do? But it's fascinating to kind of watch organizations then start to look at it and go, oh, okay, yeah, this has come up and here's how this goal has changed. Or this has come up and we now need to do three other things before we can do this in two more quarters. Happens all the time. We've built, we've actually built in a mechanism uh, at Action for Healthy Kids. Every time our board of directors convenes, we provide them with a strategic plan report. And so that requires that we go back to those goals and objectives and those things that we're trying to accomplish in the here and now and say to ourselves, okay, did we get them done? Did we not get them done? If we didn't, you know, do they need to be rescheduled to some other time per your point? Or are they no longer relevant? Every once in a while, you have to be able to say to yourself, you know what, that's what we thought was going to take place here. And that is just not what the doctor ordered anymore. Uh, and it happens more often than you'd like, I think, but not recognizing it is much more painful and recognizing it, trying to address the situation and move on. So I love that you do that report at every board meeting. Can you share what that report looks like? Yeah, it's actually, it's quite robust. It's a combination of, we have goals and objectives, concrete goals and objectives in our strategic plan. And so what we do is we literally list out and report on those goals and objectives. And because it's a board of directors, we try to make things visual. So I've learned over the years and really crafted what I think is a really strong port with our board chairs and our executive committee. And now every once in a while, we'll survey them to ask them if that report is still on target. And they tell us that it is. So it really runs through the strategic plan from start to finish and reports out on everything that we say that we're doing uh, or need to do. And so the format for us, it has worked over the years. It's kind of like at the beginning, there's a performance dashboard. So you can take a look at one document that has our key metrics, our uh, KPIs all in one place. And then it kind of moves on into increasing levels of uh, specificity and detail. It's interesting. I was going to ask like, okay, is it a one-page dashboard? What is it? But so it starts with a one-page dashboard. And roughly, if you were to guess on average, how many pages are behind that dashboard? About 15 pages, including both narrative and graphics, you know, so things like charts and, and those kinds of things to try to explain what the data is telling us. So it, it's, it's a comprehensive report. So I now have to ask, is it your sense that the vast majority of your board members show up having read every word of that? Or is this more an exercise for you and your team to do a check-in and giving it to the board as the discipline around that? Yeah, I'm, I'm so glad you asked that because I intended it as, uh, as really a tool for the board, and it has turned into a tool for the management of the organization. 
That's the reality. And the board reads it. In fact, I know that they have limited time. They're volunteers. So it's understandable. This is not a criticism by any stretch of the imagination. So I send it about out about a week or so in advance of every one of our board meetings. Uh, what I do is I point out the sections that if they're limited uh, for time, look at these specific sections to make sure that you're really looking at the details. For example, the last board meeting of the year, which happens in November for Action for Healthy Kids, uh, we always review our and approve our budget for the upcoming year. We just did that last week. And so, of course, what I really wanted them to do is dig into the budget and make sure that they understand that part of it. So I try to give them that kind of guidance as well. Nice. So I kind of walked off in a little little bit of a tangent because I was really fascinated about your strategic planning and what you were doing around that. But so strategic plan is the first part of making simple solutions or building simple solutions for complex problems. Are there other things that you think about? Where I'd love to go with this one is one thing that came up, especially as COVID became our new reality toward the beginning of this year, is crisis management. Uh, I think is really important. And I actually learned quite a bit. I've been through the recession here at Action for Healthy Kids. I've, I've experienced some really challenging times. This was unlike anything I've seen in my career. As we got going, in trying to figure out what our plan was going to be, we really took a step back and tried to identify what it is we needed to plan around at Action for Healthy Kids in order to make it through this uh, situation as best we could. We actually came up with seven different areas of planning that were required for our crisis management. And now for me, it's another one of those things that every nonprofit should have uh, kind of in its back pocket in case we experience something, you know, Hopefully, we won't experience crises to this extent for the coming years, but you need to be able to do all the kinds of things that we plan to do. You need to know what your revenues look like if you know you hit a crisis economic environment like this. We were talking about things like handbrake scenarios, meaning how do we slow down spending versus break glass scenarios, meaning in an emergency, how do you really make cuts to your budget so that you can survive as an organization? We did all kinds of things. You know, of course, one of the first sections of the plan was how do we protect our employees? You know, how do we make sure that, you know, they and even their family members, if one of their family members uh, were to contract COVID, how would we respond as an organization? How do we communicate out to them about all of those kinds of things? And, uh, and then another really important part of the plan I'd love to talk more about is as we've gone through this, and luckily Action for Healthy Kids is going to survive. We're going to end up the year with a balanced budget. You know, we made some tough decisions along the way. Uh, we were feeling really good about it. But now we're, what we're talking about is how do we go back on offense? You know, that was defense. How do we protect our organization and make sure that we survive and protect our assets and those kinds of things? Now what we're talking about is how do we take our model, pivot, and go in some new directions so that we can go on offense and start to work toward accomplishing our mission uh, in even bigger and better ways. Again. Before we jump into the offense part, I'd love for us to stay a little bit more because part of what I hear you saying is mitigating risk. So, okay, you know, how do we how do we put some sort of a handbrake on spending if we need to? Or how do we mitigate risk for our employees or support our employees? So I hear a lot around mitigating risk. A couple of things that I kind of wanted to share with a client of mine this past spring, we identified eight benchmark organizations that looked a lot like them in other cities, and they were cities that had already been harder hit by COVID. And so literally, they were just looking at what, what these other organizations were doing and starting to implement that, but they were implementing it two, three weeks in advance. And I'll share with you, Rob, it was really amazing because 
a lot of their funders would come to them and say, oh my gosh, you are three weeks ahead of everyone else in your region. And we would kind of, you know, it's a serious situation, so we weren't laughing about it. We kind of look at each other and think, well, all we're doing is looking, looking at organizations that are a lot like this one and figuring out what they're doing so that we do it in time. Yeah, I think it's a really good point. Uh, I'm in a CEO group and my CEO group has almost all for-profit companies in it. Uh, I'm the only nonprofit uh, CEO in the group. And so in addition to looking at other and benchmarking against other nonprofit organizations, you can benchmark against other for-profit organizations that have similar challenges. Uh, So that's one thing I've discovered over the years is organizational development and crisis management looks the same in many different kinds of organizations, but ben- benchmarking against other, uh, other similar organizations, that's, that's, of course, a solid strategy. Everybody should be doing that, those kinds of things. And you were asking about the strategic, our strategic plan a couple of minutes ago. We benchmark in our strategic plan against other organizations, both those that we think we're similar to now and those that we aspire to look more like in the future. For listeners that are not seeing this on video, I'm over here mouthing, yes, yes, yes. Because when I do strategic planning, and I've only started doing this, frankly, in the last few years uh, in terms of this one step, but now what we do, once we identify what the three to five-year goal is, we try to find an organization that has taken that journey over the last three to five years, and we reach out to them, and we actually do a learning journey. So we often go to a different city where we sit down with their executive team or members of their board, and we're like, okay— how did you get here? What were some of the things you ran into? So I'm, I'm right there with you. I'm all about the benchmarking, not just for who you are now, but who you want to be in the future. Yeah, I, I couldn't agree more. I think I may have mentioned to you uh, previously that I'm a huge basketball fan and I'm a coach <laughs> uh, for my kids' basketball teams. And I kind of look at the nonprofit sector. I always have as, you know, that some people are afraid to use the word competitor in the nonprofit realm. Fact is, is we have some competitors. We compete for funding. That's the reality with some other organizations. The way I look at it, however, though, is that we have competitors slash partners all over the place, and it's like stepping down, stepping onto a basketball court with your friends. You know, you want to beat them, but you don't want to destroy them. You just want to take them down on that particular day on the court and then move on. So, to the extent that we can help each other, you know, that's what one of the things I love about this sector is that, you know, in addition to, you know, sometimes competing with each other, which I think is healthy, you know, competing with each other just makes each other better. Uh, and so, we're striving to outdo each other in our missions. And I think that's really great. Uh, in addition to that, we're also colleagues and uh, collaborators when it comes down to it. And admittedly, it's one of the things I like about the nonprofit sectors were more into co-opetition than competition. But where I would take that a step further, because I agree, I think organizations sometimes compete for funding, but they're also competing for talent. Yeah, you know, it's like, so as an example, if you're an organization with case managers, you're competing for talent. And, you know, and how do you recruit and retain the best talent? And a part of it's salary, but there's a lot of other factors as well. So I, I hear you that there's a lot of ways that we're kind of competing with each other. Yeah. And I, and I think the key is at the end of the day, you know, we can compete each and every day or work to get the best talent to use your example. And then the next day we're there on the, on the project site working together. We work with schools at Action for Healthy Kids. Schools have multiple partners. They don't just have one. So the idea that, you know, we can live in a silo or work in a silo, that's just not 
not reality. We need to be able to go, you know, go into our work day knowing that we're going to be right there with our other partner organizations. So again, it's, it's, it's part of the job that I love. And I will also say that when I've run organizations and friendly competitor organization steals someone away from us, I kind of take it as a compliment. You know, they look at you and they're like, oh my gosh, if we can get that person, fill in the blank, if we can get that person to be our program manager, that person to be our development director, wouldn't we be lucky? Well, we've had him as our development director for five years. Haven't we been lucky? Yep. Like I said, I I just completely agree. And talent, that's probably the biggest competition in, for not just nonprofits, but for every company these days. You know, there's, there's a race out there to try to bring in the best possible people you can. And that's how you build an organization. It's just made up of a group of people. There's nothing else to it. (laughs) Here, we make action for healthy kids, the group of us. Right. Okay, so to continue the basketball metaphor, you're just about to get back on the court. And now you're thinking about offense. Thinking about offense, really uh, critical. So, you know, again, this is a perfect time to talk about this because we've just been through this. We had the bones of our strategic plan. We took a step back. We said, along with our board of directors, okay, is this still viable? Uh, Because our strategic plan, you know, so when we worked on it last year, although what we typically do is create three-year plans, we set out since we were coming on, coming up to 2020, we decided to create a 10-year vision for our organization. So the concrete details are three years, but the vision is for the entire decade of the 2020s. And so we've still got the bones of that plan. And now we're beginning to pivot and beginning to do new things uh, at Action for Healthy Kids that are really responsive to the COVID environment. So I can give you one specific example. Like I said, we've been working on health and wellness for years with schools and families. So what our model is what you call a family school partnership model. It's really powerful, actually. And if you think about it, what we've just experienced, because of what we just experienced, that family school partnership model is literally what the doctor ordered. Kids are now learning from home. Parents are engaged. Parents, and I should say, I use the word parents, but when I'm really talking about caregivers, people who are support kids. So parents and care, caregivers are engaged every single day in their kids' environment or education. They need to work with their school stakeholders, their teachers and their administrators and so on. And so, you know, it was really time to pivot into this new environment. And uh, we had Action for the Kids. What we decided to do was during the COVID environment in which schools were not meeting, we took a step back. We created an entirely new program plan, uh, what we call a program roadmap at Action for Healthy Kids. It's got components of the model that we've been working on for years. That's like all kinds of new things, bringing us into social and emotional health and well-being and looking at positive youth uh, decision-making for uh, older kids that are in like middle and high school, especially. And so we, we took the opportunity with a little bit of downtime, you know, uh, where schools were not in session and said to ourselves, okay, how are we going to meet schools where they're at when they start, when kids start to come back, you know, they've started to come back partially now and we still have some ways to go, but now we're ready at Action for Healthy Kids, especially to support the uh, social and emotional well-being of kids as they deal with is what is really an adverse childhood experience. So they're coming back to school or they will be coming back to school in a way that, you know, they have a, a whole new set of support that they need. And we had Action for Healthy Kids. We just decided, okay, it is time to move, move, move and create the systems and the tools that we're going to need to uh, support schools and families and kids going forward. That's awesome. And I think it's incredible that despite COVID, which is 
a wrench that none of us expected and a wrench that none of us ever experienced in our professional lives, you were still moving toward that 10-year vision. That's really incredible. Yeah, we feel really good about it. Like I said, we just had our board meeting last week and our board of directors, they just could not say enough about how we as a team at the staff level took you know, this really challenging environment and continued moving forward. Uh, and, you know, put us ourselves into a position. It's very intentional. We wanted to be in a position where as schools come back into session in person, where we could provide as much support as we're capable of. So it wasn't really a choice for us. We needed to figure out how to do things differently. Our model for years, for example, has been all about in-person education. You know, we're, at, we're there, we're conducting events, we're working with schools and teachers and family members and PTAs and PTOs uh, in order to conduct our programming. Well, that's not the reality in which we're living right now. So how did we, how the big challenge was, how did we take our model and make it virtual, more virtual uh, than it used to be? And so we've been working on that for months, all kinds of tools and resources that families and teachers can use together to keep kids healthy and physically active and well. That's incredible. Rob, I have to ask you the off the map question, and you've kind of fed me the question actually, because you shared that you are in a CEO group where it is all for-profit CEOs with the exception of you. So my question for you is, what have you as a nonprofit chief executive learned from a bunch of for-profit CEOs? Oh my gosh, the sum total that I have learned. So I've been in the group uh, for a few years now, four, I think it's approaching four years. Uh, it is a wonderful group. The name of the organization is called Vistage. It's an organization that conducts CEO and other uh, level groups. We meet once per month and we get together for an entire day once per month. We have both a speaker in most sessions, but then we bring issues to the table and everyone is expected to bring issues from their organization to the table in a way that we can sit down, not only help them work through the issue that they're facing, but also learn at the same time. And so it's hard to explain how much I have gotten from this group. What I think is really interesting about it is, so I've worked in the nonprofit sector my whole career and nonprofit organizations, we have budget limitations. It's just the way we operate. We don't have a lot to put toward professional development oftentimes, which I think is really a shame uh, because I think that things like this CEO group are invaluable for nonprofit folks. And so specifically to get to your question, what I've discovered over the years is that for-profit organizations and not-for-profit organizations experience about 95% of the same issues. The other 5% are related to what are you going to do with the profit you know, associated with your organization? We put it right back into our organizations and our mission. You know, They do something different with it. But the rest of the issues that we face, you, you brought up HR, like talent acquisition. Same exact issue for for-profits and non-profit organizations. Budgeting issues, same exact issues for for-profit and non-profit organizations. Insurance, you name it. The mid-level management and how to help you know hit your mid-level managers do the best possible possible job they can do. Uh, you know, it's just the, the the number of topics is endless, and I just can't recommend enough. You know, for people who want to become uh, non-profit leaders or or are non-profit leaders to find themselves a group like that. Uh, I would not have been able to make it through this COVID. Uh, situation without my group in anywhere near the same shape I did because of it. I, I mean, I really say that is true. I really believe that's true. I have to say that's quite a testimony for that group. That's incredible. 
I know you mentioned it's Vistage, and I know you're based in the Chicago area. Is Vistage national or only in Chicago? No, it's national. So people should check it out. And I know there are other companies out there who do similar things. Uh, you can, I'm sure there are also fantastic nonprofit CEO groups to get involved in. I, I guess the bigger point for me is find a group of really smart people who don't have a vested interest in your organization or in your cause per se, and, and work with them as advisors. We're advisors to each other, and it, it can't be a more valuable experience. That's really awesome. And we will post a link to Vistage in the show notes. So if anyone is interested in getting involved, they, they can easily do that. Rob, thank you. I am so grateful that you've come on the podcast today to really share your enthusiasm and your expertise with our listeners. And listeners, let me make sure, as you know, I do this in every episode, that you know how to reach out to Rob. He is at actionforhealthykids.org. And at his website, if you are an organization, by the way, that serves children, caregivers, parents, is involved in education, at his website, you can find hundreds of resources and activities that you can use to promote wellness, well-being, healthy habits, and more, both at home and at school. I'd also recommend when you're at actionforhealthykids.org that you check out their blog so that you can find even more ways that you can take action. And the last, and this is a little bit of a longer URL, so we're going to link to this, but it is at actionforhealthykids.org. You can view the recording of Leading the Way to Health Equity, which is their conversation with Dr. David Satcher, who you may recall was the Surgeon General under Bush and Clinton. Rob, thank you so much for joining us today. Thanks so much for having me. It's been my pleasure, and I really love what you do. So uh, keep up the good work. Thank you. And listeners, if you were just busy checking out Vistage, going, oh my gosh, how can I get into this group? You keep on checking them out, and you know that you can go to our website, SuccessfulNonprofits.com. If you're a regular listener, you hear that every week, you can go to SuccessfulNonprofits.com, check out the show notes. There you will get a transcript of our conversation today. You also will get all of the links of what we talked about. And also, if you want to be a part of a nonprofit CEO group, keep in mind that next week is the week that we are launching our chief executive group coaching that will help you thrive during the recession. I will share with you that it is curriculum-based. It is 13 sessions every other week. If I'm a betting person, it's probably already filled up because this is the week before and we're recording this a couple months, maybe three months before. But you can check it out. If you're interested, let me know and we can get you on the list for the next one. And if you enjoyed this conversation, there's two that I really think you should check out. One is episode 154, Navigating Uncertain Times with Tony Perglin. And you may recall we had her on the podcast during the spring of 2020, and she had some sage advice and comforting words for nonprofits that were facing crisis at that point. Also check out our episode 169 with Natasha Wallace. And Natasha and I talked about her book, The Ripple Effect, and ways that your organization can take care of your staff. That, listeners, is our show for this week. I hope that you have gained some insight to help your nonprofit thrive in a competitive environment. And you know, no matter how much 
I really don't love saying this, and I practically know it by heart now. The lawyers make me say it. I'm not an accountant nor an attorney, and neither I nor the Goldenberg Group provide tax, legal, or accounting advice. Really, I'm not reading this from a script. I just know it by heart now. This episode is for informational purposes only and should not be relied on for tax, legal, or accounting advice. And if you're all the way at this point, you are one of our loyal listeners. God bless you. God bless you. God bless you. If you find yourself in need of tax, legal, or accounting advice, I would recommend that you get some recommendations from peers and colleagues that you trust and that you reach out to someone who is licensed and able to assist you.